So we're going to be in Romans chapter 14 this morning. As I said, we're going to continue on our study this morning, looking at what it means to really live the Christian life, uh, live a life that's very, very much characterized by the gospel itself and uh, believing in Jesus. And so um, we're going to start um, in chapter 14, verse 1, and we're going to read this morning all the way through to verse 12. We'll put it up on the screen for you guys if you don't have a Bible. So Romans 14, 1 says this. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. And that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If you were to take something that seemed very simple, like a drop of water, and uh, look at it under a microscope, what you would find is that it is anything but simple, it's very complex. And that there are different parts to this thing that looks like it's just one thing. The church works that way, like a lot of things work that way. It can seem sort of like this you know, everyone maybe is the same or the same-ish, you know, and then you, uh, you get closer, you look a little bit closer, and you realize that there's some very different kinds of people, some very different groups of people that form up this thing that we call the church. When we get to a passage like this, where Paul is addressing how different groups of people in the church relate to each other. This is a point when we stop and we ask a question that we asked months and months ago when we started our journey in Romans, which is this. Why did Paul write this letter to this church in the first place? We know that in writing the letter to the Romans, he he gave the best presentation and explanation of the gospel that we have in Scripture. We know what it accomplished. We know how we benefit from it clearly and the role it plays in God's word uh, in all these different parts of God's word. But why did he decide to tell this group of people all of this stuff, right? Especially considering the fact that 
he says a few times he really admires their faith. He really admires what he's heard about this church. Why spend so much time explaining the gospel to a group of Christians who already know the gospel? The church um, in Rome began, Christianity began out of the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. And in Rome, it began like it did many other places within the Jewish synagogues. Uh, that was where the Jewish people would go to worship, to offer sacrifices um, on the holy days and on the Sabbath with one another. Um, their community of Jewish people was a tight-knit community, especially in a place like the Roman Empire that had, been, that had been conquered, and they were being ruled over by these outside forces that they didn't want to be ruled over. Well, eventually what would happen is people would begin to preach the good news of, of the Messiah, Jesus, how he had come, and the result would be within these synagogues, people would start to become Christ-following Jews. And unlike places like Jerusalem, um, where there was a group of Jewish leaders who could kind of keep an eye on what was going on in all these different synagogues, um, there wasn't one of those in Rome. And that ended up being very good for the spread of Christianity in Rome. Because there was no group of people to sit down and have a meeting and go, I think some people are starting to teach some funny stuff around here. Maybe we should tackle that, you know? Nope, none of that, which is good. It's good for the, for the Christian faith. Because what would happen is people would continue um, to share the good news of Jesus within the Jewish synagogue. People would become um, Christians, Jewish Christians, and they would begin following this Messiah, Jesus. They would be entrusting their life to him, and they would begin to form sort of these subgroups within the synagogue. Well, eventually, that created some tension, especially when they started reaching non-Jewish people with the gospel, because it turned out that you could become a Christian and not become a part, and not have to have been a part of the Jewish faith. Well, believe it or not, that created some problems amongst the Jewish leadership in the churches and these synagogues and these synagogues. And so they started to fight. And they fought and they fought and they disagreed. And the Emperor Claudius, um, who existed in these early days of the early church there in Rome, was fed up with the fighting. And so he proclaimed an edict in which he said, um, I want all the Jewish people out of Rome. Simple. There you go. They're all gone. And if anyone does stay, they're definitely not allowed to get together at these synagogues anymore. So don't do it, because that's where you guys get into fights, and that's where you guys get into trouble, so everybody has to take their ball and go home. And that's essentially what, you know, the Edict of Claudius said. We read about this in Acts chapter 18, where you get a good account of the early church, where we, we read this, after, after this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth, and he found a, a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy, Rome, Italy, um, with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So we read about how other churches grew uh, because the Jewish people moved out of Rome. Well, most of the Jewish Christians moved out of Rome, and all, most of the Jewish people moved out of Rome, but a couple of them stayed behind because they went, well, wait a second. Maybe we can still gather together. We can still worship together even if it's not in this Jewish synagogue. I hear some people are doing it in their houses. So they started these house churches in Rome. And so as these house churches grew and as they flourished, they were mostly reaching people who were Gentiles, which means they were non-Jewish people. They were becoming Christians and hearing the gospel without coming out of the Jewish faith. Fast forward a few years, new emperors in charge says, get, get away with that old edict. I don't really care if they're here anymore. Jewish people returned to Rome. And what would they find? The Jewish Christians. 
they would find that these Christians were overwhelmingly non-Jewish people now. They didn't even care about meeting in the synagogue anymore. They had their own house churches going on. So as the Jewish people returned, they realized that this church that seemed so much like who they were, they, they did the things that they did. They followed the rules that they followed. They worshipped on the certain day that they worshipped. They ate the food and abstained from the food that they abstained from. Now, it was a completely different looking group of people. So what happens when you have two groups of people who have totally different looking ways of following Jesus, it seems, trying to exist in the same town? Well, what they did was they formed separate churches. They had house churches over here that were Jewish Christians mostly, and they had house churches over here that were Gentile Christians. Most would agree, most historians and, 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 and uh, scholars would agree that the clearest reason why Paul would take the time to write out, explain out the gospel in such a way that he has, that we've gone through over this past year, emphasizing specifically how it's a gospel for Jewish people and for Gentile people, is to bring these two groups together and to say, you guys need to form a church. You got to stop being separate. The Sort of the purpose statement of, Rome, of Romans, it seems, is we find in Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's clear right there. Gospel, the gospel brings the power of salvation for everyone who believes, first the Jew and also to the Greek. Paul's letter to the Roman church is an attempt by Paul to bring these two groups of people under one roof or under roofs together, at least. And they didn't really want to do that to start with. And the way he communicates and talks to them, as we've seen in Romans, is he continues to elevate the Jewish people. God has a purpose for them. God has used the Jewish people. God has brought us this word through them, while also saying this is not exclusively theirs. This is now a gospel that applies to and brings salvation to everyone. It's, it's with that in mind that we look at these verses this morning and we see where Paul is getting to the actual thing that was keeping two churches, basically, separate from each other instead of allowing them to become one family as they should have been. Paul begins um, this passage by pretty clearly picking a side, if you ask me. Now, um, you can judge for yourself, but Paul says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to guard but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything. Okay, that's fine. One person, totally valid point. While the weak person, wait, wait a second, what? While the weak person eats only vegetables, okay? Without question, there are times that Paul talks and you're like, I think somebody would maybe pull him aside or after he read this, like, you, you don't want to put this differently. You don't want to soften that a little bit. I feel like your opinion is coming out here, Paul. He doesn't really seem to hide that very much. And there, it's important to understand that in that, in that 
those verses we looked at at the beginning of Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says first to the Jew and to the Gentile. He shows throughout Romans there is this sort of priority, it seems, to the Jewish people. Why? Because he's going to go so hard on them for the rest of the letter. He's going to say, you're the ones that probably need to adapt and change. You know, so he's like saying some nice stuff to them and then saying, now you guys got to deal with the hard stuff. Paul spells out pretty clearly what's dividing these two groups of people. In verse 2, he says, one person can eat anything. The weak eats only vegetables. So most would agree that what this is referring to is that the Jewish people, as, as a group that was living in Rome under Roman occupation, looked to the example of people like Daniel, who when he was living under a foreign ruler and leader, an oppressive one, showed his faithfulness to God by not eating meat or drinking wine, because those were considered the most enjoyable parts of the meal, the best parts of the meal, um, under this foreign leader. It's their way of saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, bask in the, in, in the joy and the, and the wonderfulness of this evil system that I'm a part of. I'm just going to eat the vegetables. I'm going to eat the stuff I don't want to eat. Nobody else will eat. You all know what that's like, right? There's kids in the room. You can totally relate right now. And so what Jewish people had likely done is they had said, you know, if we want to remain distinct, if we want to remain separate from this Roman governing authority, these Roman governing authorities, then we're only going to eat vegetables. We're not going to drink wine. Um, because, even though wine is permitted under Mosaic law, we're not going to eat really any meat. Even though some meat is definitely permitted under Mosaic law, it's likely this isn't talking about food sacrifice to idols. That's something we read about in other letters that Paul writes. People are not eating food because it was actually used in idol sacrifices um, in the Roman culture. And then you could buy it cheaper, and you could get it cheaper. And uh, he talked to them about that and whether that was a problem. In this instance, it really is just the fact that they've taken the Mosaic law, which says don't eat certain things, and they've kind of added some stuff to it because they're like, we want to make it clear to everybody that we are not happy to be here and we're not going to enjoy this stuff as much as you guys do. He goes on in verse 5 to say this, one celebrates the Sabbath. The other says the day of the week doesn't matter. So he goes on and he says, the other thing that separates you guys, for example, is that one of you, the group, the Jewish Christians, you have your Sabbath day. And it has to be a specific day. And probably what he's implying to is that it has to be celebrated a very specific way. And he says to the Gentiles, you can consider any day holy, any day one that can be worshipped during. And then what he says in verse 3, if you kind of go back, is he says exactly what this caused these groups to do, for, do towards each other. What, what happened when they disagreed like this? How did they treat each other? How did they handle wanting these two different things? Well, in verse 3, what he says is he says, uh, the Jewish Christians essentially are judging. He says, uh, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So the Gentiles despised the Jewish Christians. They despised them. That's a pretty strong word. And the Jewish Christians judged the Gentiles, the ones that didn't have to follow all the rules. Which makes so much sense if you've ever been in a situation like this and you've seen or been a part of two groups of, two groups of people like this that are going at it. The weak would judge the strong. That's how they would handle this. They would say, you are so immature. You are so lukewarm. 
You are such a sorry excuse for a person who really actually loves Jesus enough to follow all the rules. I mean, come on, if you loved God even a little bit, then you would actually have the discipline to cut some more things out of your life instead of just the bare minimum, which is what you're doing. And so the way that you uh, dealt with, if you were a Jewish Christian, this disconnect was by simply kind of feeling the sense of superiority and self-satisfaction by going, well, at least I know that God is looking down on you right now. And he is not happy with what he sees. And that makes me feel pretty good. The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, were despising the Jewish Christians. The strong, he said, despise the weak. This is the way that you would treat someone or something that isn't worth anything at all. This word despise is the way that you would treat a thing because it has no value. It is a piece of trash. It is a piece of furniture in a room full of stuff that you couldn't care less about. It is something that you think, I, that, I would just rather that not be here to make space for more stuff that I like or more things that I'm happy to have here. You can be here, fine, but you do not make us any better, that's for sure. In fact, you're probably a liability. You probably make us worse because you're here with your made-up rules and your legalism and all this stuff, and nobody wants that stuff around here, so I wish you would just take it and go somewhere else, but if you're going to be here, I'm not going to be happy about it. Our community doesn't need them, the Gentiles would say. We were doing just fine before they came back. We'll be doing just fine if they stay in their house churches. We're probably worse off with them here. You see, the thing that bothered them so much, the Gentile Christians, was that they looked at the Jewish Christians and said, they're just hanging on to their traditions. They're hanging on to the things they're comfortable with, the things they've done for so many years. And they need to just trust God enough to let go of those things and move forward. What we can tell by this is that the Jewish Christians were in the minority. They were the smaller group of people. We know that because Paul's speaking, saying to the Gentile Christians to welcome in the other ones. It's as though these house churches have been established and you've got smaller groups of Jewish people and they're saying, can you just bring them into your churches, to your house churches? Can you just make them a part of your community? And then I love what he says in the very first verse is he says, welcome them in, but not to uh, quarrel over opinions. Like, as if he didn't say that, they'd be like, oh, no, no, no. He wants us to bring them in to have a debate, right? He wants us to bring them in so that we can fight, you know, which is what we're going to have to do because that's what happens every time. And he's like, bring them in. Uh, I did not, I do not want you to bring them in just so that you can fight about this. I don't actually want you to have more debates about this. That is not what the church needs, and that is not something you should be doing. I actually want you to welcome them in. Make them a part of the community that you have built to honor me. I have a lot of sympathy for the Jewish Christians in the early church. I mean, for so many years, God made it clear to them that their responsibility was to remain distinct, was to remain different. He gave them the Mosaic Law. He made them their own people. He gave them a promised land, and he said to them again and again and again, what obedience looks like is for you saying we're going to remain distinct no matter what happens with other groups around us, no matter what happens to us, we're going to be different. And by being different, people will say, I see that their God, the God of these people who, who live differently, must be a great God. 
This was the thing that was at the, at the center of what it meant to be a good Jew. And the witness of the Jews was a powerful thing. Throughout history, the Jewish people have been almost consistently despised by other groups of people. They have been looked down on and insulted and judged in all kinds of unfair ways. It's like you look at it through history and historians like who are not Christians or who are not believers will say, why on earth is everyone always picking on these people in every time and every place? But the other crazy thing that historians cannot figure out is why so many people became God-fearers, which was people who wanted to become Jewish. Why on earth would this group of people who were so despised keep attracting people? That makes no sense. It is because they lived differently. It is because people saw that their God was a great God. You see, the weak, Paul says, are not weak in faith in the way that we would normally think. In fact, much of the time, those who we consider to be, uh, you know, the ones with the extra rules, the legalistic people, the ones who care too much about those kinds of details, are doing that because of the, the, the fervency of their faith. It is a sincerity of faith, and it is a deep desire to live that faith out in a tangible way, to be distinct and to honor God, that, that causes someone to live this way, even though Paul does identify it as being a weak way to ultimately approach the Christian life. There are these remnants of this legal spirit that has not yet been worked out in them. And what we also know here is that weak isn't the same as a non-Christian. Paul is not saying the Gentile Christians aren't really Christians, they're not really, they're messing up the gospel, and we know that because he's being nice to them, honestly. Anytime somebody really messed up the gospel, Paul let him have it. And he did not mince words. And he is not being that way towards these people. And so it's clear that they understand the grace of Jesus. It's clear that they are part of the church. But Paul is saying you need to be folded in with one another. In this passage, what we see here is that Paul is, he is, he is reminding the church of a few things. And they're fairly clear to see. They're fairly easy to see in, in, in what, what he's writing to them. In his goal in writing the letter to the Roman church, he is bringing together two different groups of people as a part of one family. And in this passage, he's doing that by telling them three things, or really kind of reminding them three things that they probably already should know. The first one of them is this. You are all one family. You are all one family. He says, you are to welcome them in. You are to make them a part of your community. There don't get to be different communities based on these kinds of preferences. And that is important. He is saying to the Gentiles, you cannot reject them. You cannot turn away from them. You must invite them in and you must all make this work. Do not disdain them. Welcome them in and embrace them. And what reason does he give them for doing this? Because God has done it. The same reason we do everything that we do. We do what we do because God has done that for us. We love our neighbor as ourselves because God loved us first when we were his enemy. 
We show grace and forgiveness to one another because God has shown grace and forgiveness to us. We welcome them in even though they have weaker faith because God has done that exact thing for us. What we see here is that purity isn't the primary and first goal of the church. Partnership is. God says a healthy church is going to be a church that says we're going to get together even if that makes the lines a little bit confusing and blurry and even if we know there's disagreement on what it looks like to live the Christian life when it gets down to the details. It is clear in all the epistles that are written that unity is important, that it is key, that it is the thing that we read about as the, most, as the single clearest priority that's repeated over and over again by people like Paul. If he gives one instruction, other than to love each other, it is, how do we do that? It is, be unified with each other. See, the reason why we, we turn one another away, the reason why we divide our churches up by, by all different kinds of things is because we believe that it is only by getting around people who are like us that we can actually live out the Christian faith the best for ourselves. And that isn't true. The younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son needs to be around the older brother. The younger brother who goes away and leaves and rebels only to return needs to see what it looks like for the older brother to, 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 to also rebel in his own way. The legalist needs to recognize that, that they're not actually better at being a son to the father. Just like the rebel needs to recognize that it's not any more pleasing to the father when they just take off instead of serving him as though they were some kind of a servant and it was just a bunch of rules to follow. What's interesting here is that Paul says it's okay to keep following the law even though he doesn't follow. These aren't really the, the law specifically, especially the meat thing and the wine thing. But what's interesting is that Paul could just say to the church, he could say, so just stop doing it, guys. Like, I got over it, and it was really hard for me. I was way more into it than you guys, believe me. And then remind him his whole, you know, resume and everything. I got over it. You guys can get over it. Let's just get over it and move on. We'll all do the same thing. He doesn't say that. He says, if that's what you feel led to do, if that is how you honor God, then honor God that way. But find a way to make it work, because you are all one family. Or you can do what's easier and quicker. You can simply avoid people who don't live out the Christian life the same way. And you will never have to think about this. And that will be much easier. You can enjoy the certainty that comes from purity and that comes from the sort of prideful superiority that happens when one group is all there is. The other thing that this Paul reminds us here in this passage is that God is the judge. You are not the judge. I am not the judge. And this is a reminder because they should know this, right? We, we are supposed to know this. God is the judge. You are not the judge. But this isn't the easiest thing for us to take in and actually live out. Judging is us saying, I know for certain that I am right here. Judging says, I'm not guilty. 
which isn't true. You see, in order for someone to judge, they need to be innocent themselves. This is the single biggest reason why we just aren't allowed to do it with each other. Because we're not very good judges, you know. We'd get fired pretty quick. They, they'd look at the stuff we do on our off hours and be like, I don't think that's really a great thing. So uh, maybe just stop being a judge from now on because no one really respects you or your decisions or your opinions. God is the judge. You and I are not the judge. But really, though, God is the judge, and you and I are not the judge. This is a really hard thing to get. This is a really hard thing to really actually live out because it just feels like we're supposed to be judges. Like God wants us policing everyone and everything. That's how he's going to clean this place up. That's how he's going to clean this world up. If more people were willing to have the courage to judge people they didn't like and agree with, this world would finally be a better place. And I just don't think that would be true. Jesus himself says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You see, in order for us to really feel confident enough to judge another person, we have to be looking past the things that disqualify us as a judge. Jesus knows this about the nature of, of this self-righteous behavior. This is the death of community, Paul reminds the church. This is the single clearest thing he is pointing them to. You are not in that position. You aren't. It is between them and the master that they serve. Now, keep in mind that he is talking to the people of the congregation. So I still get to judge. No, I'm just kidding. But there is a distinction, and we kind of see that throughout the early church, between like the people who form the body and the varied groups of the church and probably the overseers, the elders, the leaders of the church, the people who are responsible for actually leading that thing. That's why Paul doesn't really mince words about what he believes is considered to be weak or strong faith as a leader in the church himself. It is very common for religious people when they avoid something, I'll say when we avoid something, to make that thing into something spiritual, to make it into a moral issue. It is very easy for that to happen when you're a person familiar with religion. We say, well, this could lead me to sin, and so it must lead another person to sin. This doesn't feel right to me. And better safe than sorry, it shouldn't be right for other people either. It's very hard for us to not see things that way. And yet there are things, lots of things, that can cause one person to stumble and sin, and yet not cause another person to. Our varied histories, experiences, are the nature of each one of our fallen hearts our personalities and our temperaments and all kinds of things factor into the things that actually seem to really lead us into the weakest places of sin. They are not all the same thing. 
Now, there are plenty of things that we read about in Scripture that are universally sinful. But there's a lot of other stuff that isn't spelled out. And chances are, if you have to Google a thing, it's probably not spelled out. Like, if you've been reading the Bible for a little bit and it hasn't jumped out at you, then you probably shouldn't be Googling it to see if that person shouldn't be doing the thing. Maybe changing your translation. You know, you're like, hang on a second. Maybe over here, yep, it's kind of close to what they're doing. I think maybe that's okay. Things like money can cause one person to stumble and sin and not another because of the relationship they have with money or maybe because of their lack of money. There are people with lots of money who do not treat it like an idol. Did you read the story? I read the story this last week about the, um, the founder of Hobby Lobby and how he's getting mad. How mad are his grandkids going to be? He is giving away. He's getting, he's giving away his money. And he said, because I don't want to ruin the lives of my grandkids. How mad are they going to be when they read that news story, right? He said, he said I don't want to make the choice for them that they have to grow up wealthy because I've seen myself as a steward of this. It's all based in his, rich, in his Christian faith. It is all rooted in his faith. Because he recognizes that money can be such a temptation, especially for those with lots of it. But it isn't for him. Because of where God has brought him and what God has shown him and experienced, he is able to let it go. Which I would say is not someone who sees money, who is, who is actually... Having money function as an idol for them. I think part of it was being wealthy put him in this, in, this, in this world where he saw, he said, wealth destroying marriages and families and people's own souls. He said, I don't want that. Things like power and authority, involvement in certain things like, like politics or positions. There are all kinds of things that can cause a person to sin, but not necessarily lead another person to sinful behavior. And that's hard for us. We'd rather just, just rule out everything that causes every individual person to sin and make a really big, long list of those things, which is exactly what the Pharisees were good at doing. We say, this may be something I just don't like, and it's hard to imagine it not being wrong. I mean, I don't like it, and it's hard for me to imagine that it's not like, because I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty in tune with God, you know, so if I really don't like something this much, it's got to be wrong, right? The way a Bible translation appears, the way people parent their kids or don't parent their kids, right? Worship style. The way people's uh, uh, the, the very concept of, of kids or marriage, right? Like, like, these people don't have kids. Why? You know? Like, a person's not married. What's the deal, right? Like, there's judgment there. Movies that are, that are rated R movies. Dating itself. I grew up at a time when purity culture was a big thing in the church. And the actual act of dating for a time, was not a thing you should do. Just better safe than sorry. 
In fact, normally in church, these things tend to come in waves, and we almost never see them in real time when we're in the midst of the thing. We just, in that moment, are like, this really seems wrong because of what's going on in the world around me. And then we often will look back and go, I'm not sure that that was actually sin. I'm not sure that that was a sinful thing. This could be something I've determined should be happening in the life of every genuine believer. Maybe because of just the current moment that we're living in. It's very hard for us to understand how something could be sinful for one person and not for another. And Paul is very clear to the church. God is the judge. You are not the judge. But really, though, you're not. The last thing that he reminds the church is this. Each one of you must be convinced for yourself. What you must do, and this goes to the Gentiles as well, is the answer is not, don't overthink it, guys. Don't overthink it. Just get rid of the rules. Freedom, that's it. Don't worry about it, right? You're strong in faith. No, the, what he says is, is you must be convinced for yourself. What that means is we must actually think about all the things that we would do. Think about the movies. Think about the parenting. Think about all that stuff and our own heart and our own relationship with God and what we read about in Scripture and ask ourselves the question, is this good and right for me? Or is it not? Does it lead me to sin and to temptation? What does the Bible say is question number one. Question number one of being convinced for yourself. It begins with, what does God's word tell me? Is it clear on this? Does engaging in this thing cause me to sin? Or does abstaining from this thing cause me to sin? Does just making a growing list of things to abstain from cause me to become a certain kind of person, cause me to see my faith with God a certain way, cause me to approach him differently from what I read about in Scripture. When Jesus says that his burden is easy, am I like, I don't really know if that's translated right. We say, is this in Scripture? Is this something that's going to cause me to sin or tempt me? Is this wrong for everyone or is this wrong for my situation? And the hardest question of all, am I actually living this thing out? Because God does care how we live. Paul tells us to offer the very members of our body, the physical things that we do as sacrifices to be used for righteous and good things. Holy and pleasing to the Lord. That is our act of worship towards him. That is our act of sacrifice towards him. It is God does care about the things you do. He does care about the things that you find yourself thinking and going back to again and again. That sin exists as much in the heart and as much in the mind as it does in the words and in the actions that other people will observe from you. And only you can really know what's going on in your mind and in your heart. And so only you can ask this question, am I just kind of casually choosing to do things that I know could be sinful, maybe are sinful, because I just want to tell myself that God doesn't really care about that thing. What's interesting that Paul says um, towards the end of this passage is he uses all this language of living and dying, right? He says, those who live, live for the Lord, those who die, die for the Lord. Like, what is he talking about there? He's talking about the very act of the Christian life. Because some of the Christian life means actually choosing to um, 
let go of all of the restrictions that we have put on ourselves because we've been trying, we've been dead to sin in our efforts to be a good person. In our desperate need to be a good person without God, we have found ourselves condemned. And to those people, he is often saying, you need to live for the Lord rather than see it always as dying for the Lord. He is is the God of those who live. And then he also says, Jesus tells us that what it is to be a Christian is to sacrifice the ambitions and and the things in your life and to say, I'm going to die to myself. There is death in it as well. And there are some who need to be willing to accept the fact that absolutely you will give things up. You will have less freedom as you follow Jesus because parts of you, he says, you, you will die, part of you. But in, in that part of you dying, you will live. And he is the God of the dead and the God of the living because that's what it is to live the Christian life out. But he says, in the end, each one of us will stand before the Lord, and he will not say, I got to tell you, they're way worse. I mean, way worse. So don't worry, you're going to get a pass on this one. I really appreciate you highlighting that for me as well, because it would have been hard to see it, right? In reality, we will stand before the Lord. We will not stand, we will kneel before the Lord. And as we do, he will look to us He will not look around at everyone else, as we often do, to maybe make ourselves feel better for the kind of Christian that we are. I once heard the example, and I think I've shared this before, that the church is like a tapestry. And if you don't know what a tapestry is, you know, you can look it up. But it's like a, it's a rug on the wall. I mean, I don't, I don't get it, but I guess it's a thing. And a tapestry is this beautifully woven, um, beautifully woven thing, this decoration that's hung up on a wall. And it looks so perfect and so planned out and so ordered. It's like, how did someone do all of this? How did they sew all of this and get all this together? Just look at the back of a tapestry and see what it looks like. It is a mess. And if you flip that thing around and you hang it up that way, somebody's going to be like, what kind of weird abstract art is that? What kind of like, you know, craft did you do your first day of preschool that they let you spend that much time on that you still have hanging up in your house, right? This is the church. The church is this, this thing that we often see at first and think it's maybe cleaned up and it's kind of polished and everyone's supposed to look a certain way. But when we get involved and we start to live in community with one another, we see it's an absolute mess. And it is a mess because of what Paul has said here. He has said, the most important thing is that you make this work with one another. He says, I know how easy it would be to just form your own thing and say, believe me, it'll be better and easier if we just stay out of each other's hair. I think they want it. I think we want it. But in the end, half of you will be judging the others. And condemning yourselves. And the other half will be despising their brother and their sister. They will look down upon them as someone who is worthless, who isn't worth anything. They will say, do you know what our community doesn't need is you. It doesn't need people like you. Not here. Not now. And that is the most unchristian thing that the members of a body can say to one another. Let's pray. Father, I... 
I'm so convicted by Paul's words to the church here. And it is kind of a surprise for us, Father, to actually stop and realize that the reason Paul wrote such an incredible explanation of the gospel to this church is because he knew they needed to see that this gospel is big enough for all of them. That his desire, what his heart was breaking over, was their unwillingness to form a community that was messy. Father, I pray that our desire for similarity, for comfort, that our desire for purity would not win out over our desire for unity. Father, would you help us to live this out here? Would you show us where our heart needs to soften for our Christian brother and sister? Would people walk through the doors of our church and would they be surprised at how different the people are, Lord? Father, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.